Hello all, welcome to Chicago Justice Show. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our work at chicagojustice.org. We work on transparency and accountability in the justice system. We have a great show for you today. Our main segment features an interview with Alexandra Block and Annie McGowan. They um, were co-authors on a report around you know, basically reimagining what a new administration in the Chicago Cook County or the Cook County Circuit Clerk's Office, the office that holds the data and the records for the court system in Cook County, one of the, I think it's the second largest court system in the country. It's an office that many people know what they do, but God, do they have an impact both on the work the CJP does, but on work on indigent defense, all kinds of uh, foreclosures, all kinds of things. So um, we're really excited about that interview. We're gonna, it was taped already. We're gonna play it, it's gonna be around 30 minutes. Then we're gonna go on break, a uh, quick break, and then we're gonna go on to uh, a repeating, reoccurring segment on social media fails, Superintendent Brown style, he's good at it. Then we're gonna talk about the Newsmax versus Lightfoot flare-up or dust-up or what ridiculousness that was. Newsmax being Newsmax. I, I, I wasn't sure if I'd ever get to talk about him on a Chicago centric justice centric um show podcast but hey it's my turn i guess and then we're going to close the show on um a request from some alderman some 20 some alderman now about uh a hearing trying to demand a hearing in the public safety committee about um policing and their plans for to control violence you look at how many of these people have done anything on accountability you run down that list and Almost nothing. Almost nothing. But first, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about this CJP Nation. This is where our volunteers and interns come together, work on crowdsource research, uh, crowdsource research projects, social media activism, public policy advocacy. You can be a social media ambassador for us. You can help us with fundraising if you like. Um, there's all kinds of things. This project, this program of CJPs. This is where the research for the Public Safety Committee report that is on our website that we looked at 20 years of their agenda items for that committee they're demanding this hearing from. That's where all that work got done. So if you want to be a part of research like that and some community activism, we have another activism group that just started up. You can be part of all that. Go to this website, cjpnation.org. You can find out all about the projects that are ongoing. You can contact, I believe you can contact, well, you can contact Sydney for sure. She runs the nation for us. But you can also, I believe, reach out directly to people, the project leads, to get more information about any of those projects that if you're interested in working on, we'd love to have you. Um, if you want to just reach out to me about any of those projects, you can get me at... Uh, Info at ChicagoJustice.org is probably the easiest way to do it. Okay. Our first segment today is a conversation, an interview we did with Alexandra Block, who's a partner at the at Miller, Shakeman, and Beam LLP, and Annie McGowan, Senior Research Associate at the Civic Federation, did as co-authors for the Chicago Council of Lawyers. It's a bar association group uh, supposed to be progressive in Chicago. Um, the report is basically, the title is New Directions for the Office of the Clerk of the Cook County Circuit Court. This office, like I said, does an immense amount of things. We'll go over it in the video. It's a court, it's a, it's a office that few people know about. Even the people that have the ability to vote on who leads it 
don't know about it, probably don't get down that far even in the ballot to understand it, but it's got a immense amount of power. It's got a, it holds and maintains, among other things for our concerns, specifically about criminal justice, it maintains all the paper records and digital records of the court. So if you're looking for getting court transparency as we are, this is an office of great importance. We have had a ongoing battle. We have an agreement with the chief judge in Cook County to access all of their criminal court data since the first day they started collecting it in perpetuity into the future. The ex-Cook County Circuit Clerk, Dorothy Brown, who was incredibly, unbelievably, unbelievably corrupt, kept putting up fees for us to get access to the data. We couldn't get foundations to honor it. We have re we reached out to Senator Iris Martinez, State Senator Iris Martinez's campaign before she became clerk. She just won in, uh, in November of last year. They had promised us access. We have now just finally started to get some communication from them. So we will keep you up to date on this show about that. But it's a possibility of probably opening maybe one of the largest data sets ever in criminal justice in American history. What could be 40 years of case-level data from the second largest criminal court system in the country. Would be amazing. Let's see if that holds. So I'm going to... Roll the video, roll the interview for you. I'll be back afterwards to talk about it. All right, Alexandra Black, Annie McGowan, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Okay, so this report was issued by the Chicago Council of Lawyers. Can each of you just tell us quickly, how did you get involved in the Chicago Council of Lawyers and how did you get involved and why in this particular report? So the report was a joint effort uh, among the Chicago Council of Lawyers, the Chicago Appleseed Fund for Fair Courts, and the Civic Federation. <clears throat> Just wanted to clarify. Oh yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I am one of the co-chairs of the Criminal Justice Advisory Council, uh, which is a joint effort of the Chicago Council of Lawyers and Chicago Appleseed. Uh, we do a number of projects around criminal justice issues at the county level and the state of Illinois level. Um, and uh, the clerk's office uh, seemed like a uh, big opportunity because after 20 years of Dorothy Brown being the clerk of the circuit court of Cook County, uh, there was an open seat uh, for um, the last election and uh, so we partnered with, uh, with Annie at the Civic Federation to uh, turn our attention to that opportunity. And the Civic Federation's interest in this project um, stems from, we're a, a nonprofit government research organization that uh, focuses on the budgets of Cook County and the city of Chicago and state of Illinois. Um, and so, we, we focus on finance and tax policy of government, but also criminal justice and criminal justice um, agencies make up such a large part of government spending that it seems like a critical area. And so, um, as Alexandra said, we were also interested in the um, leadership change in the clerk of the circuit court's office as an opportunity for uh, achieving some reform. Um, and so we're approaching it from a standpoint of how can that office be um, better in terms of running efficiently, um, being held accountable, and being transparent. 
Okay, so the report is titled New Directions for the Office of the Clerk of Cook County Circuit Court. I am sure it's an office that unless you've had to deal with the legal system, most people in Chicago don't know it exists and hardly make it that far down the ballot to care about who's got the office. Like, like Alexandra said, and Annie said, it has been 20 years since we've had a change in leadership. Um, let's say that Dorothy Brown's term has been colorful at the least. Um, one of the highlights slash lowlights was her being stopped by federal agents, the FBI on the way to work and having her phone seized and dumped. Um, and then give it back to her. So that should tell you a little bit about her time there. It was not one for, um, let's say, innovation in the courts. I mean, innovation at the, like the criminal courts, which is what I'm mostly concerned about at 26th in California was them moving up to Windows 95 technology with blue screens. And now they have actually upgraded to some touch screens there. So that's an improvement. Um, but let me just quickly go over some of the responsibilities of this office so people can understand what they're talking about. It has something like 1400 employees which is mind bogglingly big. Okay, so they maintain case files and dockets for the court. They supporting judges in the courtrooms, processing payment of court costs, fines and fees, providing information online and in person to self represented litigants and the public on navigating the court system. Mind boggling already. Publishing standard forms for the use of attorneys and litigants and providing access to Illinois Supreme Court standardized forms when they exist, maintain data on court operations, case filings, case outcomes and costs, um, and they have 1,400 employees spread across multiple courts and offices. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you have friends in the legal system in Cook County, ask them. I've had multiple lawyers tell me throughout the years about the office. They've shown up in court and the court file is gone. I had uh, one lawyer I knew that had, after four years of litigating, the court file disappeared and they literally had to sit in a room with the judge and to rebuild the court, the case file. So this is what you're talking about, about why there's issues. But I'm going to toss it to uh, Alexandra. So why do you think this report was necessary to help um, suggest changes for the new administration? We just uh, viewed it as an opportunity. There is a new um, clerk of the circuit court coming into office. Um, uh, the clerk is uh, Iris Martinez. She's a former state senator. Uh, she is not an attorney. She has not practiced in any court, uh, including the Cook County Circuit Court. Uh, so although we started this project uh, before the um, before the primary, so that it so we didn't know who was going to be taking the office when we when we began. But uh, as, as uh, Senate, former Senator Martinez won the primary, it became clear that that she would be the one uh, to hold the office. And uh, we thought that um, it was time to bring in some new voices to uh, make suggestions. So, uh, you know, the, the, the topics covered in the report come from our organizations, as well as a number of academics, researchers, um, community advocates and organizations uh, who spoke to me and Annie um, uh, to make suggestions for, you know, how can the clerk's office better serve the people who uh, come to court uh, regularly and need their services? Yeah, I have always felt navigating the criminal court and trying to figure out when things were happening was um, 
was a train wreck in my opinion. Okay, so we're gonna talk quickly about, so the report lays out and everyone should read it. It's a fascinating read actually, but you have a 30 day, 180 day and one year recommendation. So I'm gonna go through a couple of each of those time periods. Ones that are most interested to uh, what CJP does, but also I think to our audience. So I'm gonna start with you, Annie. Initiate, um, this will be, I would love to see this. Initiate an office-wide office audit, including a desk audit to review staffing levels office functions and needed efficiencies. Why is that important? <laughs> that was definitely the key recommendation for the basis of how we felt like step one needed to, to take place in order basically to be able to um, get a lay of the land, understand how many staff are currently working in the office. As you said, there's about 1400 employees. It's a, it's a large office. Um, and so in order to make sure that there's the right number of people doing each job, we felt like it was critical for the office to, to take a look at um, jo jobs that are in place, job descriptions, um, how time is being spent, how um, divisions are, are divvied up, and um, basically to, to right-size staffing. And it also led into several of the recommendations that follow in the report require funding or require some resources to basically be freed up um, in order to, to create space in the budget to accomplish things that haven't been in existence um, before, such as one of the, the things that I think is really important is creating an office that handles data requests and data management. Um, not just from a technology perspective, but from a perspective of being able to answer researchers' questions. Um, and so the audit is critical. And we we have been told that the um, new circuit court clerk's administration has been in talks with um, another organization to work on that, although we haven't been aware of any actual um, agreement to move, to move forward on that yet. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems, I mean, the amount of paper that goes through that office, I'm sure would boggle the mind um, for both. And I, I, should, I should also add that it's not even just about the staffing, but also auditing technology and how uh, technology changes that they're going through right now with new systems match up with how operations are actually working. Yeah. I have been doing the work I'm doing in some form or another since 1995. I'm vastly experienced in going to a variety of their offices throughout the court system, throughout the county. Um, and just whether or not a file was there and whether or not it, they were able to get it always astounded me. Um, you never knew. Sometimes I counted on them not being there and they were, and sometimes I thought they for sure would be there and they weren't. Um, okay, so Alexandra, you're the lawyer in the group here. This is very important for what CJP does, creating a FOIA officer position. So from what I understand, and I've, the clerk's office was created in the Judiciary Act of the state, if I'm not mistaken, and they're, they consider themselves, or maybe they are exempt from FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, um, like the courts are. So one, is that true? And, um, if they are, why do they need to create a FOIA officer position? 
Right. So under the current state of Illinois law, you're correct that uh, the judicial branch as a whole is just not one of the public bodies that is subject to our current FOIA statute. Uh, and, and that is just a creature of statute and some judicial opinions interpreting that statute. However, during the campaign, all of the um, uh, Democratic candidates for clerk of the circuit court of Cook County um, verbally committed to operating the office as if it were subject to FOIA because there is nothing that stops the clerk's office from simply complying with FOIA as if FOIA applied. Uh, so we were hoping that they would voluntarily comply with FOIA and appoint a FOIA officer and just make their documents and data more transparent. Um, and uh, it hasn't happened yet, um, but we are still holding out hopes for some discussions that may occur with um, the, the clerk's office. Uh, there, there was a, a bill that um, passed the legislature, I think it's awaiting Governor Pritzker's signature right now, that uh, would make the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County subject to the Local Records Act, uh, which is sort of a poor substitute for, for FOIA, um, but maybe a first step and better than nothing. It was not something that our organizations were enthusiastic about. Um, we considered it kind of a watered down uh, compromise uh, compared to the campaign promise to follow FOIA, uh, but that's the current situation. Yeah, I mean, there's no way a politician in Chicago, Cook County would flip flop on an issue about transparency when they get in the office. That is so unheard of. Never. <laughs> okay. Um, Annie, um, we talk, I guess you touched on this a little bit. One of the 180 day recommendations is undertake a comprehensive review of technology systems, including the Kirk's website, e-filing system and case management system. I guess my first question be, what, how are those systems? Do they work? Are they highly functional? Um, and if not, um, how important is it to actually do this? The technology piece is critical, and um, and I think that the the Cook County Bureau of Technology recognizes that too, um, and so all of the all of the clerks' um, technology projects go through Cook, the Cook County um, process, and um, so basically, there's a couple of different pieces. There's the e-filing system. Uh, for filing documents electronically for cases. And then there's the case management system, which stores all of the case information. And um, the case management system has been in a transition from an old legacy system to this new uh, system called Odyssey through Tyler Technologies, which um, it came out in, in public reports that there were all kinds of road bumps and problems with that rollout. And I mean, it is just a massive voluminous system. So I can imagine that there would there were definitely gonna be hiccups, but that um, has been delayed and is still in process. We've heard from the circuit court clerk's office that they're hoping to have a functioning case management system by the end of 2021. Um, but in terms of, of how it's working and, and what information they're able to 
pull out of it, I think um, there's definitely still work to be done there. Yeah, I would you be. You wanna add anything to that, Alexandra? Uh, well, I, go ahead, Tracy, and then I can-, I can Well, jump. I was gonna say, I would, be, I would be super happy if they got a case management system operating by the end of this year. That'd be amazing. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> it, yeah, it's something that is, uh, you know, at least 20 years out of date, um, if not more. Uh, other court systems are much further along in this technological process, both other counties in Illinois and, uh, you know, the federal courts, courts in other states. Um, so it's possible to be done. Um, I practice in other courts where the technology is not so clunky. Um, and I think it's crucial going back to Tracy, what you were saying at the very beginning about how the clerk's office has this reputation for misplacing files, for example, or losing track of court dates. If they weren't doing everything on paper, it would be harder for them to misplace files. And um, they also wouldn't need to spend the exorbitant uh, amount of money that they currently spend just storing paper documents. Uh, so it really, from a budget perspective, from the perspective of just keeping cases moving, um, it's really important that they digitize. I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, court dates I've appeared for where the judge says, oh, I, I'm sorry, you have to come back next week because I don't have your file. Um, or, uh, you know, cases on appeal where I have had to reconstruct the entire court file from my own files because things just went lost and missing. Uh, and, you know, it just, it, for, for an attorney, it creates, a, it's a time suck and it creates costs for my clients. Um, but at least, you know, I, I practice in the private practice, my clients mostly can afford it. If you're talking about somebody who's representing themselves or who's represented by a public defender, um, you know, they, they don't have the, the time and the wherewithal to, to deal with this. This should be something that the clerk's office is making pretty seamless. Uh, so it really, it creates a lot of friction and a lot of delay uh, in the system in terms of just getting cases resolved, getting appeals um, up to the appellate court uh, and, I think it's something that's kind of a behind the scenes issue that people aren't necessarily aware of. But when you look at the data overall for uh, case resolute time to resolution in Cook County, especially, it's much, much longer than average nationwide. There are many, many reasons for that. But one reason is the old fashioned paper technology or lack of technology that really um, that really slows things down. Yeah. And then an, another piece of that too is getting access to court documents that are, you know, in each case, which um, currently is not like there, there's no way to go online and pull um, case documents. And so that would be the ultimate end goal is that all of these things can be integrated together and you can go online onto the clerk's website and access all of the information that you would need in a case. Right. We were, we're currently in litigation against the Cook County State's Attorney's Office for violations of the Freedom of Information Act. And we filed it in October. And I think our first or second, no, I think it was our first hearing. Didn't one take place in January, February. And we get in and the judge is like, I don't have any complaint. I don't have the file. 
right? And it was pandemic, so, but it was, you know, it was reasonably late in the pandemic. And she's like, I don't have anything. She's like, and she could see the frustration. She's like, all right, what decisions do I need to make today? Can I make any of them without having any idea what this case is about? Um, it's not, you know, maybe in 2000, you could argue that something like near, oh my God, it's, it's not that simple to just whip up a case management system. But in 2020 or 2021, um, you wouldn't think that that's, that's a simple database of sorts. Um, it wouldn't be that hard. Okay, um, Alexandra, we're gonna go back to you for this one. We're on the first year ones. And I, I am a super huge supporter of this recommendation supporting and assist installing court recording system in every courtroom in Cook County, providing public access to digital recordings. Why is that important? God, I love that recommendation. This is crucial uh, for people who are, especially people who are indigent or representing themselves. Um, because if you don't have a record of what happens in your case, um, you can't, uh, you can't appeal. And so the, the um, Chicago Appleseed Center for Fair Courts has been actually working with the Cook County, uh, the, the chief judge of Cook County for several years on this in eviction courtrooms. Uh, we also have a coalition of, of housing advocates who have been behind this uh, for, for several years um, because almost all of the defendants who come through eviction courtrooms are uh, indigent tenants who are representing themselves uh, their cases happen, you know, in a matter of seconds or, or minutes. And uh, if there is uh, no record of what happened and they are, uh, you know, and they, they lose their case, they can't take an appeal because there is uh, no transcript. And the only thing that comes out of that is an order that the attorney for the landlord will write um, and so the system is really imbalanced. I think many, many decades ago, it used to be that every uh, courtroom in, uh, at least in the Daly Center, had a court stenographer. Um, that certainly doesn't exist anymore because of budget cuts over the years. Uh, but, and now it's not even necessary because there is, um, there is recording technology, just like you're recording this over Zoom. Um, court reporters can, and in court recording systems can just make a digital recording and that should be widely available. Um, and uh, it, it should be available in, in, every, in every courtroom uh, so that there is a record. And I would say, incidentally, I, I don't know that we have statistical data on this, but I can say from personal experience, um, judges act very differently when they know, not, not all judges, but some judges act differently when they know they are on the record, meaning they are being recorded. Uh, you know, they know that somebody is taking down a transcript or this might eventually wind up with the Court of Appeals. I think they um, are a little more careful and respectful. Certainly some judges are great and treat everyone with dignity and respect no matter what. But there are other judges where you know, you know, as an attorney, you have to bring a court reporter um, or it could go differently. Um, I will say my, my understanding is that in all of the criminal courtrooms at um, 26 in California, I believe they do have court reporters um, because that is more of a, um, you know, more of a, um, an issue where there are 
other constitutional rights mm -hmm. uh, to, pr to protect. Uh, but, but uh, you know, this recommendation is especially for civil courtrooms when you're talking about high volume courts where lots of people are representing themselves when you're talking about um, eviction and uh, child support and all sorts of civil issues where it makes a huge difference in an individual's life. And if there's no recording of what happened, there's no way for them to do anything about it. Well, if you do Zoom I want, or something like that so people can look from the outside in real time, if that ever comes up, my strong recommendation was make it so that the audience or the viewers that aren't um, part of the suit cannot be seen or heard. Um, I, um, I thought, I don't know why. I, for some reason, thought when I got, I zoomed into my hearing with the state's attorney our first time, our first hearing in this lawsuit, that I would go into some kind of Zoom room where no one would see us and no one could hear us. And that was not the case. So um, I kind of embarrassed myself and got a lambasting from my, uh, my uh, lawyer. Um, I was COVID, I had a hat on, I did not look um, appropriate for court. I didn't think any, I didn't realize she was gonna be able to hear me. So anyways, that's just my one request for my embarrassment. Should learn from it, people should not have to suffer the same fate. Okay, Annie, last one. I, I don't think people understand how isolated these are so uh, siloed the systems are. Um, a, a, a recommendation deeper in the report, move integration of data between the circuit court and other criminal justice system stakeholders. So from my understanding, the systems between the police, the 911 system, the police, the prosecutors courts are, um, are pretty siloed. Is that correct? And what, what do you hope this recommendation, if they start down this path, what do you hope the outcome is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every criminal justice agency uses their own system. So just talking about the technology aspect, um, everyone's working on, on a different case management system or whatever kind of system they use to track information. So there's the technical issue of linking all those up. And then there's also the, the issue of having all of these stakeholder agencies agree to work together and, and share information. And, um, it's funny that you bring this one up because there was just a, a Cook County committee meetings that happened last week and one of them was in the Cook County Technology Committee. One of the um, agenda items that they moved uh, forward is requiring uh, frequent, I can't remember if it's uh, annual or, or twice a year, reporting from each of the agency heads on what technology projects they're doing. And one of the, the biggest projects related to um, not just the clerk of the circuit court, but the sheriff and all of these other agencies as well is um, they're calling it like the enterprise service bus, which is basically this um, entity that, that exchanges information between these offices. Um, so that's one something that we've been waiting for updates on to see how that's working and whether um, we know that, that the exchanges are happening, but in terms of how well they're working, um, that's something that I definitely wanna find out more about. So I'm hoping that through this new reporting requirement, there'll be more information made available to the public about how well those exchanges are going. All right, so I guess this last question to go to you, Alexandra. Um, the clerk's been in about six months or so, maybe a little more. What, if any, progress on any of these recommend, meaningful progress on these recommendations um, has been made, if any? 
Yeah, well, we actually, our organizations did put out a, I guess it was a, it wound up being a three month progress report. Um, uh, we were hoping for a, for a 60 day, but we had some, actually some difficulty getting some information out from the clerk's office, um, the clerk and her staff. Uh, so, you know, so that, that three month report is available on our, on the websites of our organizations. Um, and I would say, uh, like, like Annie said, they have told us that they are in talks to um, create a scope of work for the audit that we recommended. Uh, and um, let's see, and, but really beyond that, it's a little difficult for me to say where they are on any of our recommendations. Uh, we have had some discussions with the clerk's staff about creating um, opportunities to speak with us and other organizations and the public about, you know, what are their priorities, um, what's the agenda, what's their mission statement going forward. Um, and uh, we are hoping that we get more communication along those lines. Um, and uh, so far, we're that's where we are. I will. I do want to add one area where they have made progress is the Shackman compliance, okay. which is the uh, the federal oversight monitor that's in place. Um, and it was also on for other Cook County agencies, not just the circuit court clerk. Um, but we do know that that they said that that's one of the areas that they started to focus on um, right off the bat after coming into, into office. And um, so I just just looked before we started talking today to see if there have been any updates and there actually was um, a new compliance administrator report put out a week ago. So um, that has shown uh, some progress in terms, in terms of the Shackman compliance monitoring, which is um, because of problems with, with patronage and employment and hiring decisions, this federal oversight monitor was put in place. So they are working their way out of that. And um, it sounds like they, they've been meeting the, the steps that need to be met, but it's basically you know things like putting together employment plans and policies and a list of um, position, uh, positions that are, that are high level that uh, are exempt from check and monitoring. They, so there's these um, specific steps that they had to, to put in place, which it sounds like they're making progress on, but that is like a really, specific and uh, niche thing, which um, we're, we're hoping to see a lot more of just general reorienting the office to make it more transparent and um, to basically just better serve members of the public. One yeah. thing I will add is I think the um, collective bargaining agreement with the um, unit that, uh, that um, represents the um, the uh, clerk's office employees uh, has expired and I think they are in talks to um, create a new agreement. So that might be a window to um, the clerk's office priorities if they are looking to do any type of reorganization of the staff. Um, uh, we hope that they will make that new collective bargaining agreement public. So far, there haven't been any public updates that I know of about how that process is going. Um, but that's something that I think we're looking to, uh, to see, um, you know, are we kind of looking at 
more of the same or you know does it really look like they are um, putting a lot more emphasis on redeploying human and technological capital in ways that will advance the office uh, towards digitization and um, a little bit more public outreach and, and that kind of thing yeah i mean i i it would be hard to imagine Iris, Iris Martinez's time in the office as being worse. I'm not sure how the office could be managed less, um, less sophisticated than it has been in the past, but we'll never know. We'll see. Never trust anything here in Chicago or Cook County. All right, Alexandra Black, Annie McGowan, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we are back. Once again, thank you to Alexandra and Annie for taking the time to sit down with us. It's a very interesting report for those listening on the podcast. Once we post this, all the images, this video, and um, the video of the interview and the links to the report that from the links from the entire show will be on our website on that post. It's fascinating. There's no doubt that there is a massive need to modernize the office. It's probably stuck in 1990 technology, I would bet. So, I mean, just bringing it up to 2010 would be a massive Herculean effort. Who knows what's going to come of this? The office has been a little slow on the uptake here. They were slow to contact us, even though they promised to do it right away, but they have reached out to us. So we're going to keep you updated on our, our efforts to access this huge amount of court, excuse me, the huge amount of court data that is going to give us um, just a tre absolute treasure trove of information about how the criminal justice system in Cook County and Chicago is operated for, could possibly be four decades and moving forward. It's really amazing. And it was talked about on this, and I wanna just highlight this. It was talked about it on the show, I think by Annie. I may have an exaggeration, either one of them. One of them talked about the fact that the clerk's office, and this is a flip-flop already from Iris Martinez, she campaigned on putting the clerk's office under FOIA, like as if they were required to have FOIA, to have a FOIA, they're going to make a FOIA officer, Freedom of Information Act, for those who don't know. And even though the office technically isn't obligated to respond to FOIAs, they were going to make it so they were going to act like if they were and open up all their records. She and that she was going to advocate for a change to all clerk's offices. She has since caved because she's a Cook County and Chicago politician, and that's what they do. They cave. And she caved and she made the office. She backed the Senate bill, I believe, to make the office responsive to the Open Records Act, which is much, much, much weaker. So we'll see. From our perspective and our interest at the Chicago Justice Project, it's most important for us to get that criminal court data. Then we'll see what other things we can work on with the office. Okay, thank you so much for being here, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a one-minute break with more information about our nation. Uh, we meet every, uh, every Wednesday night, so if you're interested in being at the meeting tonight, starting at 7 p.m. Central, we meet every other Wednesday now, 7 p.m. Central. We have one this evening. Get a hold, Hit us up on any of the chats for the social media that we're streaming on or hit us up at info.chicagojustice.org, and we will send you the link. I'll be back in one minute. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, 
or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. All right, we are back. We are on to our second segment, which is a recurring segment. We call it Social Media Fails. This time it is Brown, Superintendent Brown style. God, does he love failing. Remember when I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this will be a common theme. He is about propaganda. And to some extent in pushing media narratives, manipulating the media and pushing, using data to manipulate the story around what his departments are doing. He did it in Dallas. He's doing it in Chicago now. Also, Lori Lightfoot is doing the same thing. And she's um, aiding and abetting on this gun possession push. They can't let it go. Same thing with the bond reform and the judges. They can't let it go. So... Here is a tweet by the superintendent. And he's just talking about how guns in the wrong people's hands are the problem. And yes, he's not wrong, ladies and gentlemen. But, 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 but. And there's always a but here in this work. And this is still his continuation. We talked about it last show, which is... They are pushing back on the narrative that Kim Fox, using data, by the way, data, data, analyzed and saw like, wow, gun possession arrests in Chicago have skyrocketed. Okay. Since 2013, there's no evidence that's made any difference in crime or violence levels. Also, most of the people they arrest have no convictions on their records. They're not just a system involved. Uh oh. Only 20% of the guns that they've been recovered through all those arrests and they've like tripled. They went from 300 to I think they're going to be 1400 this coming year or maybe higher in 2021. Only 20% of them trace back to a crime. Now, if you think about that 20% number, it's 280. In 2013, they made 300 arrests for gun possession. Now they're going to be up to like 1400 or more. So, wait a minute, what's going on here? Part of this may be more people are carrying guns, but what happened to, we target the shooters, we're going after shooters, we're using data and research methods to figure out who's likely to be shot or be the shooter, and we're going after those people. This doesn't look like that. This looks like arrest anyone you possibly can, use any reason you can to search someone. Hopefully they've got a gun, they do. You got your star. I don't see evidence that suggests that this is affecting the crime rates in Chicago. At the same time, Fox also was able to prove, at the same time, these gun possession arrests have skyrocketed. You know what's dropped? The rate at which they arrest, they make an arrest for a shooting. Right? I mean, does that make any sense? Well, we're arresting people with guns left and right. We're just not arresting people who have, you know, that have done shootings that we're responding to. The reality is, to some extent, this is propaganda in that the department doesn't, isn't really capable of having a huge impact on gun violence. Not in ways that 
would make it constitutional, let's say. But just like with the gun seizure numbers and the gun possession numbers, now they moved on to that too. The more they turn those numbers, the better the mayor and the pilot in the alderman and the city council, I mean, in the police department look and superintendent Brown looks. Why do I care if you're making more gun possession arrests? How about just arrest more shooters? Shouldn't that be your job? At the same time, they're pushing this as trying to get make it a violent crime. See the manipulations going on? Arrest the shooters. Why is the rate at which you arrest people who do shootings plummeted? What the hell is going on? Remember, 20 and 21 are such bad years. Although 20 was less bad than 16 was. They don't tell you that. But also remember, if you look at it, the less there's a correlation of gun possession arrests with increases in crime. Check that one out. Now, as we've said on the show many times, and will a million times, correlation does not equal causation. I'm not saying one caused the other. But it's an interesting correlation that should be researched. It could very well be that at the same time gun possession arrests skyrocketed, they have plummeted in arresting the actual shooters. Hashtag fail as far as I'm concerned. There's, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, Dallas reporters, I talked to Dallas reporters. Once I knew Brown was uh, life with choice, I did some work that the Chicago media didn't do. And they told me what to watch out for. They knew the con job was coming. He likes manipulating stuff. He likes manipulating data. He likes manipulating the media. He doesn't like the media. He's going to like us less in about six or eight weeks when we drop a huge story on him. Done a lot of research on Mr. Brown and something that has not hit the public in Chicago. We have it in CJP. So we'll keep an eye on it. We're going to look more into the um, what Fox has talked about with the gun, the sh being able to close what is called closed by police department and police lingo, um, the rate at which they close shootings. And if that is actually plummeted the way they say it has, that to me is a really huge fail for the department. It's something that really needs to be looked into and pushed back against the mayor and the superintendent. Um, okay, for sure. Our next segment, ladies and gentlemen, is I think it's sad and funny at the same time. Like I said in the, on the top, I didn't know if I was ever going to get a chance to talk about the crappy, horrific, right-wing, lunatic fringe, alt-right, um, propaganda, hate-filled, white supremacists, more or less, news operations of Newsmax and OAN, One American News. Um, we already talked about Chicago Contrarian here, so they're very much similar. But here we go. Newsmax sent a reporter to Chicago to get after Lightfoot for violence. Now, before you see this, remember, this is just tropes. Every, just about every, if not every city in the country experienced an increase in gun violence in 2020. I know that's shocking to you. What a worldwide pandemic, how, how could violence increase? It should be a shock to no one. It certainly isn't a shock to criminologists. But the right wing, the alt-right of the country, is trying to make an issue of it. And even some of the 
supposed liberals in Chicago that are acting much like alt-righters. And we'll have an interview with one of them Monday on our show with Paul Vallis. The tropes are, it's all your fault. You know, it's the same tropes. Inner city equals urban equals black people equals urban predator, black male urban predator, gun violence, horribly run cities. And it's all the city's fault. It's all the politics faults because they're all Democrats. You know, crime is out of control. Crime is out of control, even though it's less than 16. You didn't seem to matter four years ago. Anyways, we are going to take a look at a video of William Kelly from Newsmax having a little dust up with Mayor Lightfoot. Runs about five minutes and then I'm going to come back and talk about it. Mayor Lightfoot, what uh, Can I think. Can you introduce yourself, sir? Yes. I don't think I'm familiar with you. William Kelly, I'm with Newsmax. Um, what I think everybody knows, uh, but um, you didn't mention, I don't think any of uh, your speakers here today mentioned it, is the reason why the hotels are empty, the reason why the storefronts are closed, is because of fear of violent crime. No, uh, there was, well, sir, if I may you, ask my question, go, it's a simple question. question There's a, um, a woman, a pregnant woman was shot at a hotel across the street from here last week at four in the afternoon. Um, you know, of course, we have this uh, horrific Juneteenth, 50-some shooting, uh, 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 shootings, um, uh, a young Hispanic couple pulled from their car and shot execution style. This, this video has gone viral. I don't think... We've had any arrests in this case yet. Um, a, a tourist came to Chicago and uh, was stabbed in the back and, and murdered on Juneteenth here in, in the city of Chicago. Our police chief referred to the location of the stabbing as a homeless camp. Last time, I'm, I was born and raised in Chicago. Um, I always considered it to be the financial district of Chicago, not a homeless camp. Um, Do you so, have a question, sir? Yeah, so, so my question is, do you feel personally responsible for the uh, your rhetoric, your your um, heated rhetoric, is responsible for this off the charts violent crime in the city of Chicago? So, okay. So, white reporter in the house. <laughs> so you know what? That, that's not that's not appropriate, sir. If you look around you, if you look around you, sir. You're surrounded okay. by white reporters, so I, I really ask you okay. to, to, to... Do you feel on, responsible? Sir. Let me let me answer the question that you've already asked. So, I don't know where you're from. I but I know I know I know what I I know what magazine you're from, and I know what your conservative uh, viewpoints are. But on almost every question that you ask, you had the facts wrong. So here's what I will say in answer to about the 15 questions that you just asked. No one thinks that a single act of violence is ever acceptable, least of all me. The hotels are, are where they are here in Chicago as they are across the country because of economic shutdown related to COVID-19. So that, the, the premise of your very first question is fundamentally flawed and wrong. And you can have your opinion on it, but I got the facts. And what we're here to celebrate is the reopening of our city the great enthusiasm that our residents and our tourists have. If you look at the actual facts, sir, what you're going to find is that on our weekends, 
when people are engaging in leisure travel, our hotels are seeing unprecedented levels of occupancy, in some instances higher than pre-pandemic. I think that speaks to the nature of our city and the, and the value that people place in being here in the city. Another data point that maybe you're not aware of, um, but I will share with you. Over the course of this pandemic, we've had 32 plus relocations of corporate businesses to the city of Chicago. Businesses that could have relocated anywhere but chose Chicago. Why? Because we have a great economy. We have a diversity um, uh, of our economy. We have a great workforce and they're happy to be here because of the values that they find in the city of Chicago. So the, the premise of your question, which is it's chaos everywhere. And the fact of the matter is, sir, which you also didn't point out, but I will, um, so we get this straight, is that we're actually seeing a decline in homicides and shootings. Yes, sir. You, you, no, sir. Okay. No, 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 no. Let him, let him ask his follow-up question so he doesn't claim that somehow we're being biased and slighting the guy from Newsmax. Please, sir, it's 6.30 going on 7. Ask your follow-up question. Well, um, my follow-up question is simply this. Many uh, residents in Chicago feel that you've lost control of the city. Uh, now it appears as though you've lost control of the Chicago City Council. Uh, do you owe an apology to the victims of violent crime, the thousands of unsolved shootings and murders and stabbings and random stampings in, in the downtown and the south side and the north side and the west side? Do you owe, so, do you so, owe these people any so apology? Once, so once again, sir, I, I, I ask you to get your facts right. Um, Crime is not out of control in our city. In fact, crime is on the decline. All of our major indices showed a decline in, in um, crime and our homicides and our shootings year over year are down. That's a fact, sir. And you, sir, I was polite and allowed you to spew your rhetoric, which is offensive to me and others, but I'm trying to be polite and professional and answer your question. But if you want to write your own narrative and irrelevant to what I'm going to say and what the facts are, then we'll just move on to the next reporter, Heather Sharon. All right. How about you lost control of the city? That's not a total a lunatic idea, right? So everyone, when crime takes up in Chicago or an urban center specifically for Newsmax, they don't care which one, they hate them all. They hate the residents, they hate the people of color in them, they hate it all. But let's just talk about Chicago. Anytime there's an uptick in whatever, it's always you've lost control and do whatever you got to do for police and the justice system and do it, do it, do it. Give them more, give them more, give them more. Give them more surveillance capabilities. Give them more technology. Give them more officers. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. The problem with that attitude, it is, it is furthering, further, re, is further, it is, reinforcing, further reinforcing, sorry about that brain freeze there, it's further reinforcing the social circumstances and dynamics in these communities that guarantee that we are going to be back in the same situation in a few to three to five, eight, ten years, whatever it is. We will be back to this. It happens and we keep repeating it because alt-right people like this and some of the white people on the north side of the city are like, give the police anything they need. We're going to talk to Paul Vallis about that. On Monday, we'll air that video. We're taping it on Friday. Give them anything they need. Give them, give them, feed the justice system. Money, money, resources. And as you're doing that, that's sucking away resources you could 
provide to these communities that could potentially start building a long-term solution, which the police are not. The police admit it, but then they keep sucking up the resources and resources and resources to make sure that they get whatever they want. And they're given it to by Vallis, by Newsmax, by like the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, which now we'll talk about that on Monday. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I just got to end here. We are off on Friday for... Um, we're going away. Hey, hey, it looks like. So we will be off on Friday. We'll be back on Monday. We'll be featuring an interview with Paul Vallis, the former CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. That'll be on Monday. And then I think we also have another interview we're airing next when, next Friday. So thank you so much. Once again, if you're interested in the nation, cjpnation.org or info at org right now and we will get you info about the meeting tonight we meet at 7 p.m central i hope you see you there thank you all for tuning in we will be back with you on monday have a great weekend great holiday